how about we don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Alison Mountford, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you here. You know, so I'd love to hear, uh, I mean, obviously we're here to talk about ends and stems and we're here to talk about food waste and meal planning, but I'd like you to kind of start us off with like when you meet someone at a party and you're trying to explain what ends and stems is, how do you, how do you explain it to them? Okay. Well, my one-liner elevator pitch is online meal planning to reduce household food waste. I love but- that. If I'm at a party and I'm really trying to get people talking, I usually start by telling them that I'm a chef and I've been cooking for, you know, regular people, celebrities, politicians for the last 15 or 16 years. And then there's usually an onslaught of questions to follow after that. And then I can get them talking about food waste and ends and stems. Well, we don't have cocktails and the buzzy <laughs> ambiance of a party, but I do have an onslaught of questions because, I mean, the, the, from the outset, the app sounded so fascinating to me. And, and when you brought, brought it up just now, I, I'm you know having even more questions here. So let's start with the origin. You know, how did M's and Stems come to be? And like, when did you know this was a company you just needed to start? Yeah. So, you know, taking you way back, but I'll tell you kind of the the quick version. Um, I have been a chef for 15 years. I started as a personal chef. I moved into a meal delivery service, one of the earliest models in San Francisco doing that. I eventually had a cafe and a catering company on Polk Street in San Francisco. And all of that really taught me that to just have a successful food business, you can't throw food away. If for no other reason than food is money, and that would be you know, a terrible way to run a food business. So it was sort of instilled in me. It was just one of the pillars of what I believed in, in the food system. But then as I started kind of opening my eyes to the environmental impacts of it, I realized there was a lot more going on. Then all the reports started coming out that showed how much food we really waste. Throughout all of that time, I was doing corporate catering, cooking, you know, for private families and running my cafe. I sold that company at the end of 2015 And I went to work for a larger food tech company where I was in charge of procurement, but also I was in charge of um, helping the team that threw away their excess food. And it was a really big company and they threw away a lot of food and it wasn't one of their priorities to stop that food waste. Um, So that was when everything really sort of just came together. And then um, Trump got elected and the call to action, I think especially for women who were disappointed we didn't see our first female president was, um, you know, take a day and be sad, but then what can you contribute? How can you make changes? And I took that advice and I realized, you know, I, I had everything I needed to be an advocate for reducing food waste. And what specifically stuck out to me, because even though I catered, a lot of my expertise was in cooking in private homes. So I've seen thousands of families' refrigerators. I've seen where they struggle. I've helped them get dinner on the table. My goal, even in becoming a chef, was always to help busy families eat better. And um, when I learned that most more food is wasted in our homes than at any other point on the supply chain, but nobody was really talking about it because trying to get individuals to change is scary and hard. And it's much easier to change a system like expiration dates where you have you know millions of pounds of impact at once. Yeah. But I knew that my specific expertise and passion um, in homes could be shared. So that's when I decided to start Ends and Stems. But I did first start it as just an Instagram feed. I mm. still was working at that company and I just needed an outlet for what I wanted to say. And then after, it was a couple months, really at least half a year or more before I was feeling less burnt out and realized that I had a business here. So it was the reaction of people following me on Instagram and people I had known in other parts of my life who were reaching out to ask how they could make stock. Or one of my favorites early on was around Thanksgiving time, an old friend I hadn't seen in 20 years since high school was asking about Brussels sprouts and what could be done with the leaves when they fell off while they were roasting them. Um, And then that's when my entrepreneurial skills kind of kicked back in and I decided, how can ends and stems be a business? Amazing. I, we'll get to the Brussels leaves later because I, I don't <laughs> want to lose that. That's such a that's such a common thing, right? Because when you start to trim them, the leaves just rain like confetti. Exactly. Um, 
we'll host that for later. But I, I want to get into how does Ensign Stems work? Like if you sign up, how does the app work? How does it help you reduce food waste and kind of, you know, walk me through it. The idea was basically what all the food waste advocates were saying, which is, quote, something like meal plan and grocery shop from a list. Yeah. And what I knew sort of anecdotally, and then I, I did a large survey of over a thousand busy families across the U.S., mostly in urban areas, um, fewer than like five or six percent of people were actually following that advice. Hmm. So... I figured, how could I help people meal plan, you know, buy less at the grocery store and then actually cook what they bought to make sure that they would follow through on it. So that's basically what Ends and Stems does. Um, it takes my knowledge as a personal chef. I've chosen meals for families, you know, for a decade and a half. So I'll choose meals for you each week. I post them up on a dashboard like you would expect, you know, from any web program, basically. Um, I make three suggestions each week and then customers approve. They can make changes if they want. They scale for how many people they'll be cooking for. Then they hit generate grocery list and it does all the calculations. It tells you exactly the quantities of which ingredients you need to buy. And then you can share or shop that list at your favorite market or favorite CSA box, whatever you, however you want to shop for those ingredients. And then each night of that week, um, you know, you, you follow through and it's just like a recipe blog. Um, I write the recipes a little bit differently. So something like onions, you might see in a classic recipe that you should use one quarter cup of onions in your chicken soup. Um, that's fine. Um, especially I guess if you're a very beginner cook, but that doesn't help us if we have a whole onion, how much is that going to be? And if you use a whole onion versus a quarter of a cup, is it really going to make that much of a difference? Um, I saw saw a lot of cooks over the years who would actually measure out and then leave a few tablespoons of onion behind and then throw that away, even though they absolutely could and should have put that into the soup. So I I try to use increments that are uh, more intuitive to us rather than the classic measurement. Um, It's one of the reasons I love cooking is because you can make changes like that and it's not going to alter your final dish. So I try to incorporate little tips like that all the way through. Um, and then people can share the recipes, they can rate them, they can save them, they can you know pull up their favorites. There's also an ingredient index. So let's say you were coming at it on the other end where you've already cooked the meals of the week, but then you open your fridge and you have, you know, half, you have four ounces of mozzarella and um, you know, a breakfast sausage. You can mm. actually type that in and it will give you a recipe that utilizes some of the ingredients you have. So we're sort of stopping waste on both ends, both in the plant planning. And then even after your, your best plans are laid, you're always going to have something in the fridge. That's amazing. I love that idea of empowering people to like shop their fridges smarter. Cause I think that's right. such a pain point. I know I've run into it in my life. I've, I've talked to imperfect customers that have that as an issue. I've talked to friends that, you know, when it comes to hodgepodge day where it's just a bunch of random stuff, it can be honestly intimidating. And yeah. that can sometimes be a source of waste, that kind of intimidation or maybe even guilt or shame around. I don't feel like I'm a good enough cook to run with what's in my fridge right now. So all I really, of those things. I've I really respect that them. about your model that you're addressing it from both ends. You know, I think meal planning's becoming very trendy. I think that's awesome. You know, what's your take on why focus on meal planning? Like why does meal planning have such a big impact on food waste? I think it's tied into um, what you're saying about feeling insecure about your abilities as a cook. I he- I've heard from so many people that if they're following a recipe and they have one ingredient either missing or they're short, they don't feel like they have the skills to then continue with that recipe. A huge percentage of people will either just stop cooking or not cook that recipe. Yep. So um, I want people to to feel comfortable enough in the kitchen to make small changes. To, you yeah. know, some of the questions I get a lot, especially from you know, kind of early users are things like, I'm out of parsley. Is rosemary a good substitute? You know, on potatoes, maybe rosemary is a good substitute, but as a chopped garnish, you know, on top of a chicken breast, it's probably not a good substitute. So really starting to learn about ingredients and where they work and where they don't. And then also just kind of giving people a sense of community and a space to make a mistake. You know, if you put raw chopped rosemary on top of a dish, it's still going to be edible. You might hopefully make a note that maybe that wasn't the best choice there, but I want people to be able to try it and learn to cook from there. I love that. The other thing about meal planning is 
I think any amount of planning, right? I'm, I guess I'm a list maker in general and I'm an organizer. I'm just generally somebody who makes plans. But if you take a moment to think about your upcoming week, who has soccer practice, who's working late, who's you know, going to be eating at school or at a friend's house or has something else coming up. If you take a moment to actually see what's upcoming and then decide what you'll eat and what to buy accordingly... I think you feel less of that um, guilt that you bought too much or you should be cooking more or any of these weird emotions that we assign to what we're supposed to be doing. But if you kind of just take it back to the facts of what your week is going to look like, then you can do something that's a little more honest for what you'll follow through on. And you know, it doesn't have to be shame-based. It's just, we're only going to cook once this week or we'll cook once and eat it twice. But if you kind of put that down and you know, so much research has shown that if you write that down, you're more likely to stick to it. Yeah. I think what's really getting to the essence of meal plan is that it encourages people to purchase more appropriately. That's so huge. Because, yeah, so many people we've had in the pod have talked about that, that uh, when it comes to home level food waste, it's ironically not very complicated. Like the one, the single biggest thing you can do is not buy more than you're going right. to eat, which is paradoxically simple. But I think we need folks like you out there advocating for, for how to do it and really make that bite size. And I think the bit you brought up about flexibility is huge. You know, we had Dana right. Gunders on the pod and that was one of her top tips that really kind of blew my mind is when creating a meal plan, plan for the nights that you won't be cooking. Yes, Which definitely. sounds counterintuitive, but it actually lets you off the hook and allows for that flexibility to actually waste less food, which is so huge. Definitely. I still order Thai food for my family all the time. We eat burritos <laughs> like once a week. Yeah. You know, we still get takeout, even though I could cook those things. And sometimes I do. Yeah. Sometimes you just need an easy win. You need, you know, everybody needs a night off. You need a night off yeah. from the dishes and, and that's okay. Just plan it plan that and, you know, make sure your fridge isn't full of things that are perishable, um, you know, so they're not going to waste at the same time. Um, the other thing I was going to say about that too, is, um, just making sure that, you know, your fridge is filled with things that you will eat, but not too much. So yep. when you have a meal plan as well, you know, you don't want to plan. I, I tell people three recipes a week. You don't want to plan to cook all seven nights a week and then stock up as if there's, you know, a hurricane outside or something. You just buy a little bit and go to the store, you know, maybe twice a week instead of once. Um, what I found, again, through interviewing tons and tons of families was that cooking two or three times a week is really about the maximum that most people are willing to do. Yeah. Um, there's always going to be something coming up. So if you make an honest plan that only has a couple of nights of cooking, um, it just seems to be much more realistic for people to pull off in today's super busy world. Yeah, the realism is huge. And you know, once you make those two or three meals, you can very often ride on or repurpose the leftovers you created. Because you bring up a great point. If, if you cook seven nights a week, that's almost invariably going to be more food than you and your family can eat, even though it seems like, oh, well, we eat a meal every night. But it's like a given meal that you cook is very likely going to have one to three servings of leftovers in it, right? Definitely. Yeah. And as somebody who spent a lot of time cooking over the last 16 years, I can tell you for a fact, if you try to cook seven nights a week, you're just going to burn out. Mm -hmm. It's unrealistic. You yep. can't do it. Everybody needs a night off. You know, your hands need a night off from the dishes and just in general, that's, that's too many nights of cooking from scratch. Yeah. The flexibility part is huge. And I really appreciate what you said as well about don't hold your feet over the fire about not having every single ingredient a recipe calls for. Because, you know, there are so many kind of what I call like culinary synonyms out there, right? So it's like, if you know, like if you know about like hard versus soft herbs, like, yep, rosemary is not a great sub for parsley, but cilantro might be pretty functional if exactly. you're making like a chimichurri or something like that. So once you can get into the tactics of it, it actually is very liberating. You know, that, that's something we had Carla Lolly music of Bon Appetit on the pod. And she really is huge on that, that you don't have to have the whole list. Yep. You do have to understand how recipes work so that when you're subbing stuff or omitting stuff, you're doing it intelligently and not just kind of out of panic or a reaction like, oh, I don't have that. So I guess I just shouldn't even try, you know? Exactly. And I would just add to that, that it's, you know, some of it's trial and error. Certainly yeah. you can look those things up online, but it's not going to be the end of the world if you try something and it isn't the best version of chicken parm you've ever had because you use the wrong type of cheese in a pinch or that's how you'll learn to do yep. it next time. And I feel like when I can convince people to 
embrace the artistry of it and embrace learning through trial and error. And then especially I think women are really guilty of this where they're the ones in charge of cooking dinner, but then they feel like they have to apologize because they weren't good enough at it. Mm -hmm. And um, Julia Child famously said, you know, this is what I made. It might be good. It might be bad. I'm not going to apologize for this because your butt wasn't in the kitchen cooking this. I'm the one who did all the hard work. (laughs) And I just love that theory. And I want people to know that, you know, cooking is an art and um, you create something that's more than the sum of its parts every time you put it together. And, And a lot of that is just practice. So you know, go get them, try something and just make a note for next time. And that's how you'll improve. And I know if you cook that way, you'll also start to enjoy it a little bit more as well. That's so huge. I, I love that. That idea of letting yourself off the hook, allow for some flexibility, some forgiveness. And with cooking, you can eat your mistakes. You know, if you mess yeah. up your craft project, like you're kind of out of luck and you might have to whatever recycle or compost it. But if you mess up a meal, it's very likely it's, it's going to still be edible and awesome. You know, let's get into the tactics here because you're such a knowledgeable person to have on the pod. You've already mentioned this idea of allowing yourself some flexibility in terms of a night or two to not cook. What are some other easy wins when it comes mm-hmm. to meal planning smarter. So one of my pet peeves about the cooking world today is the the gap between what the fancy celebrity chefs are doing, what we want to watch on TV, and what we're actually able to pull off at home. Yes. So I mentioned Thai food before. I love Thai food. I love cooking it. I love eating it. I'm not going to pull off at home from my Northern California pantry, a very authentic tasting, transport you to Thailand, you know, street cart noodles. It's not going to happen. I'm going to make some simplified version of that. And that might mean reducing the number of ingredients and simplifying the process. But it's, you know, again, it's about just the love of it and the artistry of it and the ease of getting it on the table. So look for dishes when you're cooking for yourself that are simple and easy and aren't requiring you know, 10 new items to your pantry because we can go out for those things. Or if you really want to try a new cuisine or something that you don't have, save that for a night when you have a lot of hours and you can prep and you can really follow through on those things. Um, But keep it realistic and keep it simple. Hmm. And I do think you should start with a calendar. You should definitely write it down. Um, I also have two little kids Sometimes they eat well, sometimes they're crazy picky. You know, little kids are little kids. I cook for a lot of families and and a lot of my customers are families. So I think the other thing is to get your family involved. Mm. I don't think that meal planning or feeding the household should be the responsibility of just one person. That person will almost always end up resentful and feeling like they're doing more. And with kids, one of my favorite tactics to get them sort of involved in the dinner is to have them tell you what they want to eat and then find a way that you can cook a meal that, um, that everybody in your house will eat. Going back to Brussels sprouts, my daughter, who's five, will not eat a whole like halved Brussels sprout, but she loves the leaves that fall off on the side. Huh. So when I go to cook Brussels sprouts, I actually pull extra leaves off and roast them and they taste really crispy and chip-like and she'll eat a whole pile of those. So it's one of the ways where I say, hey, what kind of vegetables do you want to eat this week? Instead of just saying, oh, I don't like anything green, we actually do together pull up a list of things that we know she'll eat. So get them involved in the meal planning and then sort of divide and conquer from there. That's amazing. Yeah, we've had a couple of folks on the guest because it's a thorny question when you're talking about cooking for kids. Uh, you know, I know as a picky eater as a kid and my, my mom made it work somehow, but uh, it can be a real challenge. And sometimes, like you said, you almost want to back away from it because it's just yep. too much to think about. But I love this idea of getting the children involved. And several folks have brought that up, actually, that it's actually the best way to get them to like what you make is to involve them in the making, even the shopping of it, you know, get them involved. And then once they feel a sense of, um, you know, they've bought in a sense of ownership, then they actually might really like it in a way you didn't anticipate. Yep. Then you can get them to help you in the kitchen and set the table and, you know, age appropriate tasks all the way through. But it really does start with even deciding, you know, hey, last week you didn't like that cauliflower stew I made. What would you like to eat this week? 
yeah. then you can come up with a way to, you know, balance that. And maybe that meal, you know, maybe if you're having a cauliflower stew, they don't like the broth or, you know, turmeric or whatever you put in the, the flavor of it, but you can still take the cauliflower and roast a couple pieces separately. So you're getting something the kids will eat, but you don't need to make a completely separate dish. And all of that should be just jotted down on your meal plan um, from yep. there. Amazing. So don't let the complexity of the the TV cooking world and the Instagram cooking world intimidate yes. you. Get with your calendar, make simple, realistic plans and get your family involved if possible. Yep. Those all are um, huge tips. I and love that. My fourth tip is to think about variety in terms of a month rather than in terms of a week. So mm. to keep it simple, let's say this week you're going to make a side dish of quinoa. You could have quinoa two or even three times this week, but then next week you don't have it at all. And then you'll make a different grain or a different side or whatever it is. That way you can cook it once, you can buy it in bulk, you can keep it really simple, eat it in a variety of different ways. So you might have it a lot for two or three days running, but you won't see it again for two or three weeks so that by the time it comes back up, you're looking forward to having it again. So I think it makes it easier to think about eating leftovers, to remind yourself that this isn't the dish I'm going to be eating every day for the rest of my life. You know, it's not a, a prison sentence like that. You just um, have variety on a larger scale rather than on a daily scale. That's really impactful too, because I think it's a great way to avoid the type of burnout that leads to food waste. Mm -hmm. If you force yourself to eat kale for like every meal, every meal, every week, or, you know, every week of the month, you might just end up making these kale dishes that you can't or won't finish. And then suddenly you're wasting kale and it's, it's a right. real dilemma. But if you, yeah, build in that variety and like almost a rotation, it sounds yep. like that's such a great way to avoid that. Yep. So if you keep your last week's meal plans, you know, whether it's on the computer or you know where it is, if you're using ends and stems, they're all listed there, you know, you can always go back and see what you had last week. Um, in that way, you can have a, a larger scale variety. Totally. That's really great. You know, I, I, let's dig into food waste a bit more here. I love the idea I saw on your website of doing a food waste audit. For folks who haven't done this before, or unfamiliar with it, you know, what is a food waste audit and why should folks try it? And how, do you, how do you do it? So I got to throw this back to Dana Gunders. I first came across this in her book, which was one of the most influential books, um, the Kitchen Waste Handbook that I read as I was getting this whole thing started. I had never heard of a food waste audit before that. Um, but the one change that I've made is instead of doing it with pen and paper to make it electronic, I think it's just easier for people to do it. And I had a lot of success actually with the students for a sustainable Stanford. They were like a, a group on campus there that did it with pictures. So instead of, you know, printing out a spreadsheet, which all sounds very oddity and hanging it up near your trash can, um, just for a, a designated amount of time, it's ideal if you can do it for at least four or five days, maybe even a week or a week and a half before you put anything into your trash or compost, take a snapshot. Hmm. And then you can go on Canva or whatever your favorite photo editing tool is and put all those photos in order side by side. And you can actually get a picture of what you're wasting and what you're throwing away. If you have multiple members of your family that use the trash can, like a partner or whatever, um, even if your kids are old enough to do it, you can put all the photos together. And then from there, you can see if there's any common trends. So the idea, you know, the general idea behind it is that you can't reduce your food waste if you aren't sure what you're reducing. So it's a very, you know, classic baseline scientific idea that you have to first measure the problem before you can improve on it. And measuring food waste in general, um, you know, I'm sure you guys know and, and deal with it all the time. It's so hard to figure out exactly what is wasted or yeah. even worse. You know, you can never figure out what would be wasted if really it hard, wasn't sure. wasted. So to some extent, there's always some, you know, intangibles that we're working with. But if you take photos of what you are wasting, so the, I guess the premise of the first week when you do the audit is try not to make any changes. Don't think about it too much. Just live as you would, um, which is almost impossible. If you have, you know, a crust of bread and you're thinking you're doing a food waste audit, I dare you not to just eat that crust of bread <laughs> instead of throw it away. But it's fine. For the good of the cause, we'll take it. Um, but the idea would be, you know, take a picture, load them all side by side, and then, you know, again, pull your whole family in. Everybody can look at the pictures, point out things you know. This works great with like elementary school age kids. Um, one thing I always find in my house is that 
I don't like lettuce. I think I do. It's crunchy and delicious when I eat it at restaurants. I love it shredded on tacos, but I will not. I work from home. I will not make a salad. I am mm. not going to do it. And all the time, if I'm feeling like I you know, want that crunch or try to be healthier or whatever, I end up wasting the lettuce. Yeah. I stopped buying it. And I've decided the change will be that I will eat lettuce in big, beautiful salads when I go out to eat, or I will buy a tiny little head of, you know, little gem lettuce, which is just enough for taco night once, but I'm not going to buy a big bin of lettuce. And before I did the audit the first time, I think that wasn't something I could quite put my finger on. Yeah, that's huge. I'm I'm a fellow aspirational lettuce shopper and I appreciate you. No, seriously, you've kind of broken the silence for all of us to admit that sometimes I'll buy that head of romaine, not because I think I'll finish it, because I think I should be eating it. Yeah. Which is kind of embarrassing Definitely. to share, uh, especially on the podcast. But it's, it's something I've realized and I've caught myself in that trap. So yeah, I've actually backed away from buying lettuce unless I have a very clear plan for how I'm going to use all of it because yep. it's such an easy thing to waste. It's not long in your fridge, even if you store it properly, you know, all nestled in like an abigo wrap in the corner. Yep. It's just like, it's hard to keep it fresh. So it's Definitely. good to be realistic with yourself. I think that's really important. And I love this idea of like treat, you know, if you, if you want food waste to be something you can seriously address, treat it seriously in the same way that if you want your finances to be something you can organize, yeah. you'll never get a handle on your spending if you don't know what you're spending. Right. So exactly. like, yeah, I, I, I remember a moment like this a couple of years ago where I was like, hi, oh, I feel like I just like my budgets aren't great. And yeah, it's like you could go ahead and make changes then. But if you actually look at like, oh, I'm spending this much on groceries, this much at restaurants, like this much at bars or whatever, then it's easy to actually see like, huh, I really should like skip the, the happy hour like one night a month and I'll yep. end up saving, you know, this amount over the years. It's the same with food, yep. right? And for the, you know, the classic audits and, you know, like the one that Dana was running when she was doing Save the Food and the government organization ones, you have to weigh everything. You have to separate it out into, you know, what was preventable food waste and what is not preventable food waste and what does or what doesn't count. And, you know, that's all really very important. And we rely on that research. You know, my business is built on that research and and stating that importance. But for families doing the food waste to change what they buy at the grocery store or how they think about dinner, I don't think you need to do that Um, because you're really just trying to get an emotional connection to what you're throwing away to make changes to be better. And if you're telling families they need to pull out the scale and make sure to tear out the container, (laughs) you lose them pretty quickly. And then suddenly it does feel like an audit. But when you can do this kind of looser version, that's really just for your family to, you know, start somewhere and be better. The actual amount of food that you're no longer wasting matters a little bit less. And, you know, I I see a lot of what I do is just trying to motivate people to start making individual change. And it, it, you need to keep it effortless and fun and keep them engaged with it. And I found that the, the photos and the lack of measuring things um, in terms of on a scale helps to that end a little bit. Um, but there are plenty of city and county organizations that still run measured food waste audits and they're all super, super important. Um, but I don't think you need to take it to that level. Yeah. No, I think the idea of of taking photos is so impactful. It's so simple. It creates a visual trail of how you eat, how you cook, what you waste. And, you know, they've done studies, for example, with people that find themselves overeating a lot, where if there's like, if you eat a bunch of chicken wings and you have to leave the bones on the plate, people eat fewer chicken wings than if the bones are whisked away. And this, this idea of out of sight, out of mind, I think is so powerful with food. So I love this idea you're bringing up of create a visual trail of what you're wasting so that you can't, fully hide from it. Maybe not that you're hiding from it, but you, you have to at least deal with it and think about it. And then you can make small, but, but impactful changes. I think that's just so so huge. Yep. And then the, you know, the other end of that, like back to the lettuce, let's say you do have the head of romaine and you know that you typically waste it. Um, I've seen a lot of people will keep it in their fridge and then they know it's going bad, but they won't throw it away yet, even though they have no intention of eating it. And then like two or three more days go by. And then suddenly when it's slimy and definitely inedible, like nobody would recommend that you eat it at that point, Yeah. then they no longer see it as 
wasted food. They see it as garbage and I can afford new lettuce. So I'm just going to throw this away. It's almost like we refrigerate it to the point where the shame of it or any of the guilt around (laughs) it goes away. And then we throw it away because I'm not going to eat garbage. You know, I work hard. I can afford a new head of lettuce and I can afford not to eat slimy things. But you know, removing all of those emotions. We don't want you to feel shame. We don't want you to feel guilt, but we do want you to be realistic and just realize that in the three days before it turns into slime, that was edible and you do have a responsibility to it. And if you're not going to eat a salad, you could make a smoothie, you could grill it, you could give it to your neighbor, you could donate it. I mean, you could do so many other things with it. And, you know, I hope without, um, making people feel bad about themselves. We can inspire them to take action to be better for communities and better for the planet in those days before it turns into slime. Totally. It's, it's so impactful there. You know, you've spent a lot of time writing recipes for other people. And I think a lot of us today live in almost what I'd call recipe overload. Like I myself have probably yep. close to four dozen cookbooks on the shelf in my living room. I spend my days looking at websites online, you know, with the event of, of Instagram and Pinterest. I think people are flooded in recipe content constantly. So let's talk advice for how do you pick out a truly good recipe? Yeah. Um, so first, my favorite thing that I've heard recently was that there are more recipes online than atoms in the entire universe. <laughs> that's ama- Wait, that's amazing. Wow. Whether, whether or not there was science behind that, it feels true. Um, and it just makes me laugh to think about it. And what's interesting, I always tell people when I'm trying to explain ends and stems is that you know it's a monthly subscription. So people pay me 10 or $12 a month to get access to the site. But, you know, on the surface, they're paying for my recipes. But really what customers tell me why they've stuck around and what they're really paying for is that I do the decision making for them. Hmm. So you're paying a private chef $2 a week to tell you what to cook. And, you know, there's plenty of of reports and things that have come out about the mental load of running the house and all of that. So really the people that love it and get it, like that's the value of it. It's not that um, you couldn't get my recipes or a recipe that's just as good otherwise. One of my most popular recipes was a honey or is a honey sriracha salmon. And if you type that into Yumly or Google, you get thousands of reviews and um, not reviews, sorry, um, hits of yeah. similar recipes. It's only got five ingredients in it. I mean, it's not reinventing the wheel here. But I love your question because one of my big complaints about a site like All Recipes or even just the Google results is back to these people who aren't sure which substitutions to make or they don't really feel like they have a lot of confidence in the kitchen. If you can't scan the recipe and understand some key points of it, Mm. you're not going to know how that dish comes out. It's like sheet music. I don't know what that song is going to sound like if I just glance at music, but I do know people who are, you know, such talented musicians, they can look at the notes on the page and hear the song in their head. So that's what I want people to be able to do with my recipes. So To me, one of my biggest pet peeves, um, and I'm using a lot of metaphors here, but I do have another one. I love metaphors. Keep going, (laughs) please. Okay, great. So one of my favorite ones about writing recipes is telling people why you want them to do something. So let's say um, boiling potatoes. So the classic like culinary way to boil potatoes is that you always start them in cold water. You put the potatoes in it, and then you bring that up to a boil while you cook the potatoes. Well, why? Doesn't it go faster if you boil the water first and then dump the potatoes in and you know you do it like pasta? So if in a recipe you tell people that the potatoes will keep their shape better and they won't get that fuzzy edge on them when they start in cold water, people who haven't tried this a thousand times go, oh, okay. Yeah. That's not only good advice, but I choose to follow your instruction because now you've told me why. So it reminds me of, you know, in the, in the city drains in San Francisco, there's a picture of a crab and it says, don't litter drains to the bay. It's like, yeah. okay, I wasn't personally going to litter anyway, but if I was thinking about it, now I see a crab and I understand this goes back into our water. So rather than just feeling like it's following somebody else's rules, it gives you the reason why. So I try to include that in my recipes so that people can have an understanding of it as they go. 
that's big. I mean, we're creatures of context. Like we need to know why, especially if the end goal is to really develop empowered, independent, improvisational right. cooks. Like you have to know the hows and whys of how a recipe is put together. Otherwise, you'll only ever be able to cook that one recipe. You won't be able to just make salmon in general. You know, if you don't understand right. the the syntax, as it were, the grammar of your salmon recipe, then you're kind of going to be changed to just that one recipe as opposed to just understanding the category. Exactly. And I think a lot of recipes online also try to be really like unnecessarily concise. So they take mm. a lot of that out. And I get that it should be short so it's not overwhelming to people. But on the other hand, people who aren't expert cooks do need a little more information. Um, another example is a good friend of mine was making a chocolate pudding for her kid's birthday. And it was kind of like a chocolate mousse. So she had a very heavy chocolate bowl and then she had a light bowl of whipped cream. And it said to fold one into the other. So as a chef, I know that fold you know, I could write, a, I could write a 10 or a hundred word article on, on what fold means. You do yeah. it in thirds, you use a wide spatula, you use a large bowl and you lightly in parts, take the heavy chocolate and you incorporate slowly without deflating the air from the whipped cream. Yep. She just assumed it meant whisk the two together. So at the end, her mousse came out sort of like hockey pucks and she didn't quite understand why. Hmm. But all the recipe said was fold one into the other. Just yeah. little letters that didn't even come close to explaining what she was supposed to do. So I think a good recipe, especially for my audience, um, you know, is to to give these details in a way that, you know, still lets them get through the recipe quickly but makes them feel empowered and confident in what they're cooking and also helps it to turn out correctly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the structure matters a lot and the how matters a lot. And I think we've all had moments like that where we followed a recipe and we're kind of really baffled why it didn't turn out the way we thought it would. And I think a lot of times it's what you're talking about. It's these things that, yeah, if you've been brought up in a kitchen, you probably were shown at some point, but most people right. don't spend time in professional kitchens. You know, uh, an example I think about a lot is like my first restaurant job involved me making whipped cream from scratch every day before dinner service started. And something I learned really quickly from the prep cook that trained me is you want a really big bowl so you can tilt it and really aerate it with your whisk because right. we didn't use a food processor. I don't know why. We did it from scratch. Um, and so I've literally been at friends' houses and they're trying to do this. Right. Like, hey, can we quickly make whipped cream? And they'll always start with a tiny bowl. And I'm like, look, you can do that and you can do the motion you're doing. But if you hold it, you know, with this grip, where you can really use your shoulder and your bicep and really use the full width of the bowl, it'll be 10 times faster. Yep. And that could be the difference between someone making a recipe and not making it. You know, obviously not everyone needs homemade whipped cream, but when it comes to like a quick pasta or something, like the little stuff really does matter, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. And personally, I think it just resonates with my personality too. I like rules and I like structure, but I also want to question them. So I need to know why you have these rules yep. and I will follow them up until the point that I think they're terrible rules and then I don't want any part of them. So yeah. I kind of always have that in mind when I write recipes and, and you know, want to make sure I can convince people with my my reasoning of why they should do it one way versus another way. Totally. That's that's really huge. Yeah, something I do is I'll like I'll kind of speed read like a dozen recipes. Like if mm -hmm. I'm interested in making like taco sal pastor, for example, I'll like speed read a dozen recipes. And what I try to do is pick out like what are the commonalities they all have, not like what are the differences, but like what does the al pastor have to have versus like a nice to have. And that's a pretty yep. easy way to at a glance be like, okay, I absolutely need to have like an, a chili, an acid, these aromatics. But like if you don't yep. have all 12 spices it's it's not the end of the world yeah that's great i love that yeah i think um you know you're, you're just really making me rethink so much of the kitchen right now which is awesome i i'd love to talk about literal ends and stems for a minute because it, this is another area where a lot of waste happens is you bring yeah. veggies home and you can't or won't use all of them so are there any types of veggies or parts of veggies you see folks throwing away that they really should be using some of my favorites are the leaves of things where we eat the roots. So like beet greens, um, you know, obviously if you buy a whole bunch of, of beets, you get both parts, but it's one of the things where I see it in the store when you just see a bin of, of the beet root, you wonder what happened to the greens on top. And, um, you know, they're really super delicious. It's basically the same as a $4 bunch of shard to get greens, but you're not really even being charged for them technically. Um, yeah. Radish tops are the same if you, you know, can get them from a good source and they're still in really great shape. Um, and then on the other side of that um, would be the center stem. So back to shard or kale, I always eat the stems of the 
chard and the kale. Sometimes um, I'll just cook it all at the same time. I don't mind the crunch of it. But then other times, or maybe if I'm cooking it for a client or something, I will separate off the leaves of the kale or chard, chop up the stems like you would celery, and then saute that with the onions and garlic at the beginning. So they cook a little bit longer and then add the leaves to it afterwards. So that in your final dish, you know, you'll see the little um, stems chopped up in the middle, but they taste fantastic. If you wanted to just have a fluffy pile of shard with no stems. You could use the stems, you know, anywhere you would use celery in a soup base or, you know, in a gratin or something like that so that you can use up uh, those parts. The other thing, the easiest one ever are peels. Carrot peels? Who peels a carrot? You've got to be nuts to peel your carrots. Why (laughs) would you do that? Um, I have one of those big bamboo, you know, or coconut fiber scrubbers. I can't even tell you the last time I peeled a carrot. Um, I have no patience for that. I literally can't even think of a time when you would need to peel your carrot. Um, If you're getting, you know, decent carrots and you're washing them well, you cannot tell the difference whether the peel is on them afterwards. And the so, peels the peels have a lot of nutrients in them, Absolutely. Right? Definitely. And it's a waste of time. And then you need to use the peeler. You need to wash one other thing. Um, and then it, with the exception of Thanksgiving, when I truly want fluffy, skinless potatoes, I always eat the skin of all my potatoes, always. And same, you know, reasoning. Um, peeling potatoes... I mean, it's even cliche for peeling potatoes to be like punishment in the military, mm. right? Yep. So why would you want to peel the potatoes? Um, always, always just scrub really well, make sure you get all the dirt off and anything that's clinging to it. I always eat the potato skins. Even most yep. sweet potato skins too, you can eat. Absolutely. Respect the potato peels. And again, a ton of nutrients in there. I think yeah. that's that's huge. Now, thank you for sharing that. Going to bat for the peels of the world. Not Absolutely. everybody does, but this is why we need folks like you Definitely. out there. And you save time, yeah. right? Even if you, I can't convince you otherwise, you're going to save, you know, six minutes. Everybody wants faster dinner. And I think between uh, like good knife skills and yeah, knowing mm-hmm. when you don't need to do a step, it's yep. huge. That could be 10 minutes right there, right? Of yep. like not needing to peel stuff. And yeah, totally. That's huge. I think another, you know, vector or cause of food waste I see in home kitchens a lot is people just getting really burnt out or tired of their leftovers. And I'm sure you have to deal with this with with ends and stems of folks will make a meal from you, but then they might have extra quinoa, extra salmon, extra kale. What are ways you can spice up leftovers to make them more interesting? Right. Not fully answering the question, but number one is don't cook too much. So I have, you know, a a thing where you can scale down the recipe to four or six servings. So just be conscious of how many people you're serving and don't cook too much. So that's number one. But if you do have leftovers of things, uh, my top tip is to store things in different Pyrex containers when you put them in your fridge. Hmm. So if you have quinoa and a side of spinach and salmon, it might be tempting to put it all in the same dish. I know my husband wants to always do that. Um, but then your quinoa is going to taste like salmon. And then yeah. you might not want to just microwave that whole dish and eat it later, but you've prevented yourself from being able to repurpose the quinoa into another dish. Yeah. So I would rather wash a few more dishes and have everything, keep the sauce, you know, separately. And, and that way you have building blocks of a new meal rather than just a bucket full of leftovers. Yes. Um, and then you can, you know, you can take that quinoa and do a million things with it if it hasn't been sitting underneath a, a filet of salmon. And even with your salmon, you know, you could then flake it on top of a salad or you could make salmon cakes out of it or, you know, whatever you might do with it afterwards, but you're in a better position when they're not um, blending on top of each other. Um, and then the other thing is, um, you know, to, to think soups, think stews, think things that, um, have less, like if your first dish is something where each ingredient or each component really shines, think of your leftovers as things that meld together and then always go with, you know, a vehicle that is friendly and you like. So my top ones are anything that even remotely resembles an enchilada or um, a quesadilla. Any amount of leftovers can be sandwiched in between tortillas, you know, add cheese and salsa and you're good to go. The other one I love is a fried rice style. I would use quinoa and do a fried quinoa style, fried rice style quinoa with whatever's in there. And then my other favorite one is pizza. Pizza's good with everything on it. And I stand yeah, by that. <laughs> totally. It's a great way to, a great little vehicle, like kind of magical use it up. I think, yeah, between yeah. like pizza, stir fry, and then some form of like casserole, stew, or taco, mm-hmm. you can use up probably 98% yeah. of all leftovers. 
Yep. And you have your go-tos and then things like that, you know, you can have a stir fry sauce in a jar that, you know, stays fresh and, and good to eat in your fridge for a month. Just have it. I always have like a peanut based stir fry sauce that I love. You can dump that on anything. So it makes it really quick on leftover night. Same yeah. with enchilada sauce. You could even freeze it in little bits so that you're just always ready to go with something like that. Yeah, I think that's that's huge. I, I I love the storage tip, and I love I think the thing you bring up about thinking about your food in terms of building blocks is really big. Mm-hmm. Like we're doing a big push right now at an Imperfect called kind of shortcuts to dinner, and the whole idea is if you start yeah. to think of food in terms of like having the components around rather than this endless list of recipes and potential ingredients, yep. it's actually a lot easier to make a quick dinner if you're like, okay, what is my whatever starch grain? What are my aromatics? What sauce am I going to top it with? Do I have a couple fresh herbs I could kind of brighten everything up with? Suddenly making something like a grain bowl or a stir fry or a soup is a lot easier because yep. you probably have the components in your fridge if you start to see your fridge as components instead of like 30 ingredients, you know? Definitely. Yeah. And you know, any chef in a restaurant cooks that way. They're, whatever you meet, order in a restaurant, they never started it that moment. They started that days before and they carry it over. And I do actually have a feature on ends and stems that is the prep ahead list. So Mm. once you approve the meal plan that I've recommended for that week and you get your grocery list, you go to the next step, which is prep ahead. And it will tell you if you have half an hour, 45 minutes, you know, days in advance, here are the 10 things that you can do quickly, but that will shave time off, you know, dinner each night in the upcoming week. And that's a really popular feature. Amazing. I love that. Prep ahead, save time. Yeah. So cool. Do you have any final tips for folks about how, like, how do you uh, work to reduce food waste in, in your life and anything you'd say uh, you'd recommend for folks at home? I guess the one thing um, that we haven't talked about um, is that individual behaviors really do count and they matter and they add up. And even if your literal next door neighbor isn't paying attention, there's a community out here. There are a lot of people paying attention. I actually track it on ends and stems and we do a little impact report and it's only been live since the summer. So we have like five months of, of active customers and we've already saved the equivalent of six elephants worth of food waste just by customers following along. And you might, that might only be, you know, a pound of food per week per family. And that's not that much, but when you see what the whole community is doing, it really matters. And the reason I'm so passionate about that is because we, you know, I truly want to help stop the world from the worst effects of climate change, but we're not going to do that individually. We need community change. We need systemic change. Um, So I guess if you want to be involved, you know, beyond just like doing your food waste audit and not wasting lettuce is find a community, participate in a community, you know, give five or 10 bucks to the sunrise movement, which are, you know, or to Greta or, you know, to kids or politicians or someone in your community making a difference. That's sort of a level up from what you're doing individually. Um, I'm a member of 1% for the planet. So Mm -hmm. it's a tiny drop in the bucket, but we're donating to food shift to help, you know, save food from farmers markets and other places and train people to cook. And um, we need to, you know, the baby step is paying attention to your own kitchen, but then I hope people sort of get addicted to it and they see that it's possible. And then they look for the next level up, which is something bigger in your community. Tell somebody about Imperfect. Tell somebody about Ends and Stems. Send that referral code. Get somebody else following along when you're passionate about it. Share it on Facebook. You know, it's so simple. You can do that in half a second. You just have to kind of take the public stance and raise your voice and get somebody else involved in it. That's a really awesome note to end on here that, yeah, one, your individual actions can and do matter. So don't be intimidated. Like it does add up to change. That's so awesome. The ends and stems community impact you've had. You know, we just celebrated a pretty big milestone like that recently and perfect. And it's really humbling to think that all of this is the sum of a bunch of small things. Right. So they do matter. But I love that you also include like, and we need systemic change. It's not either or, right? right? So we need to be talking to our elected officials. We need to be talking to our businesses, our schools, our churches, our community centers, you know, whatever community organization you're part of, it's very likely they're consuming food, buying food, wasting food. 
we can all help drive that to a better outcome. So I, yeah, what, thank Definitely. you for bringing us on that. That's a great conclusion here. Let's get to the speed round. Are you ready for the some I'm fun ready. closer questions? Okay. Okay. Um, this last one, or the first one of the set. Okay. Basically, is there anything we've talked about that you think folks should follow up with kind of on their own time or explore in more depth? Um, get your kids helping. Yeah. Yeah. Get the kids in the kitchen. Get your kids meal planning, get them in the kitchen, get them helping. Amazing. What's a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think folks listening should try? Um, my, you know, I was good at food. So my sustainability action this year was in fashion. So I'm buying secondhand clothes and actually just stopped buying clothes in general for a bit. Awesome. Definitely worth looking into the environmental fashion. impact of fashion. I'm just starting to learn about it now and it is mind blowing. Yeah. I can't believe I was complacent for so long. So, um, amazing. You know, thank, thank you for sharing that. Uh, if you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them? So I have cooked for so many thousands of people. Um, and my brain is just a wasteland of remembering people's favorite dish. So I like to cook people's favorite dish for them. Um, for my stepmom, when she comes to visit, um, I always cook her pasta carbonara. And, Mm. um, I think remembering the, the act of both doing it and remembering what they love, um, is, is the winning combination there. 100%. 100%. There's no gift quite like what somebody loves mm-hmm. to eat. I've, yeah. it's, there's a unique type of joy you see in somebody's face. Definitely. It's super cool. What ingredient could, could you not live without and why? So many, but butter. Yep. That's it. It's butter. It makes everything better. Definitely. What's your least favorite thing to waste? meat uh, because I know the impact is worse and I am not a vegetarian. I do eat meat. I don't really even have any plans to stop, but I'm very aware that it used to be a living being and was part of the world. And then the impact of wasting it just seems so much worse. So I try to eat less meat and um, definitely not waste it. Absolutely. And what is your go-to karaoke song? I am a double threat of loving to sing, but I am horrible at it. Terrible, like so bad. Um, recently, it's been Alexander Hamilton, Ooh. the banner song from Hamilton. Do you, do you want me to do that now? Or uh, we, do that we might have to have a separate podcast okay. just to have you sing the entirety of the Hamilton soundtrack. Okay. Stay tuned, folks. There will be a part two. <laughs> uh, amazing. Who is somebody you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them? Um, you know, this answer would change probably every hour you asked me, but recently, um, it's one of my very first clients who became a mentor of mine and is sort of like my family away from my family. She's a breast cancer surgeon and a mom and she works her tail off and she's also just an amazing, loving person. And, um, my life is better for having her in it. That's awesome. And finally, what are you grateful for this week? Uh, my kid's health. my own health. Definitely. I have two little kids and they're awesome. And, you know, we're all making it work, but, uh, I think we have so much to be thankful for. And just that, you know, we're here and our bodies work and, um, we might have things that we want, but we have most everything that we need. And, you know, that allows us to do awesome things. That's a really touching perspective to close on. Thank you for sharing. Alison Monford, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do at Ends and Stems? So Ends and Stems is a web app. So you can actually just go to any browser, whether on your phone or on your tablet. It's endsandstems.com. And then I am on all the places at Ends and Stems. Um, my Instagram is particularly um, interesting because I like it the most, um, but we have Facebook and a Facebook group and I think Twitter too. Amazing. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes and on our website, unwastedpodcast.com. And if you listening have any questions or comments, shoot us an email at feedback at unwastedpodcast.com. Allison Monford, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. 